This is the College of Europe's Connect Society podcast, where ideas meet action and the future of Europe is only a click away. The Connect Society is not just about discussing digital issues. We are amplifying voices of experts in EU digital policy from here in Bruges. Get ready for these in-depth discussions with industry experts, leaders, and of course, our student advocates. This podcast is possible thanks to the unparalleled academic environment at the College of Europe, which positions us to explore the space of digital policy. This platform by the College further allows us to be part of a community that does not just converse about the future, but also gives us the tools to actually shape it. The EU has been on an online regulation streak, starting big with the GDPR, through regulating on terrorist content online, to the DSA package, and the AI Act most recently. In this context, we often talk about the so-called Brussels effect, whereby the EU sets global standards by exporting domestic rules, such as in the area of online regulation. That, however, can bring along not only positive effects, but also some negative impacts on the EU. And that is exactly the topic of this podcast episode with Mr. Werner Steng, who is the cabinet expert from the team of the European Commission's Executive Vice President, Margarete Vestager. Together, we talked about setting global digital standards from the EU, as well as the cost of the policy leadership, online regulation in general, the impact of EU regulatory efforts vis-à-vis the transatlantic cooperation, innovation, physical domain of the digital transition, as well as the future outlook. This is Marketa Shunkova talking with Mr. Werner Stein. Thank you so much for finding the time in your busy schedule. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. So, to kick off, a lot has been said about the Brussels effect, the EU's export of regulation, and becoming a regulatory superpower. So, what's your explanation of the EU stepping into this role and, and braving into regulating the internet? And do you think it's feasible and viable long-term to be setting global standards in the increasingly multipolar world from the EU? Well, I think it's it's proven to be feasible. Uh, it was probably not the objective to start with. So we did not set out to say, well, now we have to adopt global standards on digital. The starting point was rather that looking at the development of the digital world, Europe felt something needed to be done first and foremost for its own citizens, for its own companies. But then since the same phenomena are being experienced all over the globe, it's not a surprise that we soon uh, entered into discussions with, with many other jurisdictions and that many other jurisdictions were, were looking very closely at what we were doing. So the Brussels effect is an effect, as the name suggests. It is not necessarily an objective in its own right. Well, it seems to me that there still is a somewhat binary perception of online regulation. Um, on the one hand, there is the self-regulation and more or less free internet. And then there is the top-down regulation. Um, so do you see another way forward, such as a shift towards a global internet governance? Um, and if so, where do you see the EU's role in such a process? Well, first of all, I think it's important to get the terminology right because what we have been doing is not about the the internet as such so the the whole uh, architecture and technology of the internet as we know it what we have been regulating mostly is some applications on top of the internet right 
So Europe has always been a, a fierce defensor of an, of an open internet, if you want, and of the multi-stakeholder process for all the infrastructures that underpin the internet. What we have been regulating is mostly the very large platforms that have created ecosystems on, to on top of the internet. So I think that's a very important distinction to be made. A possible issue that is worth mentioning in this context uh, is also the impact on the transatlantic alliance and, and cooperation between the EU and the US, where many of the digital giants uh, have their homes. The EU and the US have very different perceptions of regulating in this domain. Um, so I'm wondering, where do you see uh, the space for future collaboration, considering the fundamental differences in conception of governing the digital spaces? First of all, we have much more in common than what separates us. Um, so you're, you're referring to regulation and that there may be different approaches on both sides of the Atlantic as to what should be regulated, how it should be regulated, whether it should be regulated in the first place. That's one thing where, where there's a lot of common understanding is on the, on the challenges and on the risks that have emerged in the digital world, where, as a matter of fact, we are very close to one another. We also keep referring to, to the US and ourselves as, as like-minded nations, uh, simply because we have so much in common. And by the way, um, this, this like-mindedness uh, extends well beyond this transatlantic partnership. Because if you look into what the Canadians are doing, what the Australians are doing, the Japanese, the South Koreans, and many others, we are very much looking at the same issues here. Now, Relations with the U.S. are, of course, very special relations. Uh, and there we, as you, as you certainly know, we have also the, the Tech and Technology Council going on, which has been the forum for discuss, transatlantic discussions on digital matters for a couple of years now, where we discuss all of those issues and indeed where there's a lot of alignment on many of the issues. The only difference really is that uh, often we are faster or more determined in regulating those issues, which doesn't necessarily mean that the US would be seeing that very differently. It's just a matter of fact that it's much harder in the US to get any laws through the system, if you want. But as you certainly know, there's been lots of, of legislative initiatives trying to do some of the things we have been doing in Europe here when it comes to platforms. And I remember an op-ed pub published by President Biden just a year ago or a bit more, where he was more or less saying that what Europe has been doing on the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, is something the US should be doing as well. But it's very hard to get it through the system. So I would see much less of an opposition there as it sometimes is portrayed. Here, I would also like to touch upon the cost of policy leadership. On the one hand, the EU has been pioneering new regulatory measures and paving the way for similar policy steps globally. But on the other hand, I wonder whether striving to always be first, to be the pioneer, and therefore not being able to learn from the experience of others, as well as some of the mistakes that might happen along the way, um, whether it may not in effect lead to weakening of EU's global position and image. Well, you will not be surprised that I, I tend to disagree with this rather pessimistic assessment. Um, 
you know, learning, we've been learning from, from the digital space for many years. It is not that what we have been doing in the last two, three years um, has been has been falling from the from the sky, if you want. We have been looking into the digital world for many years uh, with a very gradual approach, if you want. If I if I start with with sort of content moderation type of work, right? About the liability framework, about about illegal content, about hate speech, disinformation, child sexual abuse, and you have it. Um, we had a very similar approach with the Americans for a long time, where the Americans with their Section 230 had the liability framework. We had pretty much the same under the e-commerce directive of the year 2000. And it was a bit of a passive approach where uh, it was a bit left to the platforms to decide what they should be doing in terms of content moderation. And just as a backstop, sort of if there was really something legal, they were aware but didn't do anything about it. Some intervention was nest was possible if you want. That left a lot of leeway for uh, for pri large private companies to decide on their own what was good for society or what was not so good for society. So there's been a long time where self or co-regulation was giving a chance in a way to prove its value. And then we had all these public debates, if you remember. And take take the Cambridge Analytica case is just one example. Where uh, or take uh, Frances Haugen's testimony of of Facebook's activities when she said, "Well, Facebook, and I'm just giving one example here. Facebook was not necessarily taking decisions in the public interest. Uh, it was more uh, to to maximize interaction on their platform and 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 um, clicks and 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 sharing." Uh, and the resulting ad income uh, for those platforms. So that is normal, if, 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 if I may say so, for private companies. They are private companies. All the big tech are private companies. And it's not a surprise that profit maximization is the main driver. Now, that is not necessarily in line with the public interest. And this is why this sort of self-regulatory uh, framework has gradually been uh, been strengthened by specific laws coming in. And we had experimented with this for many years. There was something on terrorism, there was something on copyright, there was something on, on child sexual abuse, and there were some laws coming up on hate speech. Um, so that was a, a learning process over, over 10, 15 years, if you want, that culminated then in, in what we now call the Digital Services Act, um, which, which sort of introduced a, a more horizontal framework in trying to bring greater transparency, greater accountability into this digital world. But it did not fall out of the blue sky. The same, uh, I can say, on, on market power related issues. Okay, now we have the Digital Markets Act, which, which sort of regulates or sets some boundaries as to how very large gatekeeper platforms uh, can operate, um, but also there, we had we had tried for many years to to use competition law enforcement uh, as a main instrument. But there again, after years, we have found that this didn't work as well as it should, because it's always taken years, of course, for such cases to mature. In the meantime, many companies that had complained about 
anti-competitive behavior by those gatekeeper platforms had long gone out of business. Uh, so it takes a long time. It is limited to a few companies. So just the case at hand, uh, if ever it, it, it matures such a case, it would only apply to that company in question. So also there, legislation was sort of uh, the, 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 the instrument of last resort after other things had failed. We had also one interim step, by the way, which we call the platform to business regulation of about five years ago, where we had said, okay, competition law may not be enough. Let's have more transparency as an interim step. So there was a regulation that said, you large platforms, you have to be more transparent about the way in which you operate and why you decide, I don't know, to delist companies that depend on you, uh, why and how you use data, why and how you may give preference to your own services. But there were no legal limits to what they could do as long as they were transparent about this. When nothing of that has changed the way in which the digital world has been evolving. And we saw all those, uh, all those markets become less contestable, less fair, uh, not giving any opportunities and chances to other market participants. So as a last resort, legislation kicked in. So on, on both fronts, content moderation and market power regulation, that was a process of 10 to 15 years, uh, well-prepared and well-substantiated. One more question with perhaps slightly pessimistic undertones, even though I personally see and agree with the, the positive impacts of online regulation and its importance. But I still think it's important to raise this, uh, and is that I'm wondering about the unintended consequences that may stem from setting global online regulatory standards. The EU online regulation builds on the universality of rights and societal norms, as well as their understanding. But what about places where this may not necessarily be the case? Do you think that there is a risk that simple copy-pasting of the EU rules that originally actually aimed at protection might potentially lead to the exact opposite somewhere else? Well, you know, there there's always risks in life and there's risks in regulation and there's risks in politics. And I'm also not arguing that what we do ourselves is always perfect. It can't be, you know. Lawmaking, by definition, is already a balancing act. It is, it is an act of... of of deciding, drawing, drawing, com making compromises, drawing the line between conflicting interests. I'm, I'm sure we come back to this issue, but it's also about competition versus innovation. It's about privacy versus security. So there are lots of trade-offs on the way that even within Europe, of course, uh, we have had long discussions on how to balance out this, this divergent interest. So it's not easy. At the same time, um, it's necessary. So we felt that in our own interest and for the interests of our citizens, we needed greater fairness, greater transparency, protection of fundamental rights, protection of competition. So in spite of the risks uh, to, to make some mistakes, even within the EU, we felt there was an act, there was an, an need to act in the public interest. Now, just imagine now we had said, um, we need to do this, but someone else, somewhere else, may take this in this as an example and do something bad, um, should we then just drop the pen and say, oh my God, let's rather accept all the shortcomings, all the risks, all the downsides 
because someone somewhere may draw wrong conclusions from this. So I think it's just not an option to be honest, right? And if you look into China, for instance, to give a very obvious example, whether or not Europe acts in one way or the other when it comes to the internet, what impact did that have or may that have on China's own decisions on how to regulate their online space? How, how would it ever affect the Chinese policy of using the internet and platforms uh, as a way of increased surveillance of their citizens and companies? They're not going to look into Europe and say, now we copy-paste. They're just doing what they think is right for them. And if in, in Russia, uh, Putin uh, uses uh, online tools for propaganda purposes, for, 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 for disinformation purposes, or whether he decides to limit access to information to Russian citizens, uh, when he employs measures of censorship. I mean, th these guys and the more autocratic systems, they will take decisions as they see fit uh, in their own interests. So we are rather, if at all, I would argue, we are setting a positive precedent in how uh, things can be reconciled. How can you address phenomena linked to illegal content or disinformation in a way that preserves the fundamental rights of users? So how can this be done in a way that preserves freedom of expression and free speech while still addressing the risks? So I would rather consider us as a, as a role model rather than a recipe for for bad activity. Now, going back to the Brussels effect, uh, we've seen how GDPR has indeed reached global influence. So in that context, I'm wondering, uh, do you expect the same success from other regulatory pieces? And if so, which ones and, and in what way? Uh, and in this context, considering the re recent provisional agreement that was reached on the AI Act, I would also be interested in hearing your views on this specific legislative piece. Absolutely. Before turning to the AI, just still one word on the on the platform regulation, because there, since this has been out for quite a while now, we have seen more already of this process effect, because we have had numerous discussions with jurisdictions all over the globe that knocked on our doors, or we have been discussing with them anyway, and said, oh my God, this is very interesting, very promising. And you have seen jurisdictions from, from Canada to Brazil to Australia, New Zealand or others, or Japan, really looking into our legislative body and say, well, that is great inspiration. And more or less, we have seen already some copy pasting of this. So just like the GDPR, we are seeing already on the ground efforts to, to take on to take over some of the of the lessons that we have learned in Europe to inform other jurisdictions. Now, the AI Act is, of course, a, an excellent example as well. Um, also here, I think, and even more obviously, Europe is not acting in isolation. Yes, we have been the first ones putting a proposed law on the table. Meanwhile, of course, agreed politically with the co-legislator. But when we proposed the law three years ago, we were the first ones globally to put out a law on AI. But even that uh, was also not the first time we discussed this. 
We have had discussions on trustworthy AI um, several years before that. Uh, we had uh, high-level expert groups. We had engagements with the OECD. There were discussions in other international fora on what it takes uh, to make AI trustworthy, right? There have been globally, I would say, accepted principles that what it takes to make AI trustworthy, what it, what it means in terms of data governance, what it means in terms of explainability, of transparency, of robustness, and so on and so forth. So all of those principles have been out there for a, for a long time, I would argue, uh, where there was quite some global agreement that this was necessary and that was the way to do it. We were just first to put this into a legal text, if you want. Now, once ChatGPT started to hit the, the headlines, um, you saw an immense acceleration of global regulatory activity. So it was quite interesting to see that lots of jurisdictions that had not intended to legislate in any way on AI started almost frantically to consult and to look into this. I remember private stakeholders coming to my office in the last few months and saying they have counted uh, global endeavors to regulate this space. And they said at some time that 45 jurisdictions worldwide were simultaneously consulting on how to regulate generative AI or general purpose AI. Yeah. So just to say this time, we're not the only ones looking into this. Then we were having the G7 discussions uh, last year under the, under Japanese leadership and the Hiroshima process. Well, and and all the Hiro all the G7 members agreed on on the principle, the guiding principles for for advanced AI, for a code of conduct on advanced uh, systems. We saw the US coming forward with their uh, voluntary commitments on 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 generative AI just last summer, after the summer, President Biden issuing his executive order with quite far-reaching and detailed uh, uh, rules on, on how to implement that within the US. We had the UK organize the AI Safety Summit in Bletchley Park uh, just two or three months ago, where we had uh, governments coming from all over the globe, including China, by the way, uh, discussing with us for two days on how to address this. So just to say, this is a global endeavor. And if you compare, for instance, the text that we have in the in the draft AI Act, so the one that was politically agreed before, before Christmas, uh, especially on generative AI, uh, general purpose AI, with, if you compare this with the G7, code of conduct, if you compare this with the self-commitments in the US, this is pretty much the same stuff. Naturally, there is also criticism around the EU online regulation, with some saying it goes too far and then can impede on the freedom of speech and human rights. But others say that it does not go far enough, such as in the context of privacy protection, targeted advertisements, and surveillance in general. Um, and moreover, the current regulatory tools obviously do not cover all the threats and issues the EU citizens may face online. So I'm curious about what else might there be in the pipeline or whether at this stage it's more about focusing on the implementation and possible updates 
of the existing toolbox later on? Well, for, I, I think there's some time for for consolidation now, and as you rightly suggest, for, for implementation, for compliance, for enforcement. I don't think we are we are looking for any new rules at this stage. We just have a rule book that on the on the platform side that is being implemented as we speak and on the AI Act, which still needs to be implemented, right? We are still having one or two years ahead of us to see how the new rule book can be actually complied with and enforced. So definitely no time for new rules. But coming back to the to how you started this question, um and when you say that some people said we go too far, others saying we're going we're not going far enough, that is just an illustration of what I said before, that you cannot possibly get it right. There is no absolute right or wrong. This is about value judgments, right? It's about value judgments on, on what needs to be done. And if you ask two people, you would have two different views on this. If you ask 10 people, you probably have eight different views on that, right? If you ask about surveillance, that's a good example of a trade-off between, for instance, when it comes to AI, between uh, privacy on the one hand and, and law enforcement on the others. Um, and if you have one person, if you ask one person, they will be saying, oh, we don't want any use of biometrics, uh, whether by public bodies or by private companies, because it's, uh, you know, it's potentially means more surveillance of people. Uh, and others would be saying, hang on, um, we need this to secure uh, the, the, the safety, well-being and, of our population and to fend off the next terrorist attack. Both are right, but they cannot be right at the same time, you know. So you have to find a balanced systems. And most of the time, this is about, this is about checks and balances. It's about safeguards, yeah, that you say, well, you may... Uh, either prohibit something totally if you think that's unacceptable, we don't want social scoring in Europe uh, in the Chinese style, or we do not want any any mass surveillance by the police just because they may one day catch a terrorist by doing this. Yeah, So you have to define exactly under what circumstances can technology be used by private companies or by law enforcement um, and have... Uh, the transparency around it, and that should not be underestimated. Because what you will find through the DSA, through the DMA, through the AI Act, it means an opening up of systems that have been super intransparent, non-transparent in the past. We've had all this opacity surrounding us. You don't, we, we simply even today do not know how exactly big tech or the police are using technology, right? So through our laws, we have been shedding or we will be shedding a lot of light on how these things are being used, with what effect, who is concerned. We will have uh, redress possibilities and so on. So again, it's we're living in a very complicated world here. I would like to ask about innovation as well. I wonder how can we ensure effective striking of the right balance among regulation, protection, and innovation uh, while making the EU market appealing to digital companies and fostering development and innovation and thus becoming more competitive worldwide, uh, especially if in other markets the digital companies may not face that many restrictions? 
Yeah, of course, one of the uh, of the big questions in this space, uh, quite obviously. Um, I mean, the first answer is, of course, proportionality. So, I mean, this is the core to it all. Um, laws, our laws should be addressing risks, high risks, where there are risks, and mitigate those risks and not go beyond those. So that's the first one, which is as difficult as all the other things we have been discussing, right? Because how do you define risk? What is a high risk? What is an unacceptable risk? What is the what is the best risk mitigation measure? All of this raises hundreds of questions, right? But still, the approach is valid. Uh, where there is high risk, you cannot say, well, innovation prevails, right? If there is a risk of 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 massive violations of our privacy, if there is massive risks of our fundamental rights to be violated, of discrimination going on, of you or me not getting a job or a place at university or a loan or insurance coverage, or us being subject to police work, you know, predictive policing, anticipating whether you or I will be committing the next crime. So if, if there's risks of that nature, we cannot just say, well, let's not regulate this because this may stifle innovation one way or the other. There, not every innovation is societally benign, right? So, I mean, there's a bit of a, a myth around innovation that is always good. No, it's not always good. There are ways and, and areas where innovation may be harmful or at least where we need some guardrails to be sure that this innovation unfolds in a way that is, that is, that is societally benign. So that, that's a very important one. Second, um, don't forget uh, the importance of, of legal certainty in all of this. And that we have been told by many, many companies we have been talking to in the last few years. Uh, if you take AI, again, as an example, um, as an innovator, as a company doing research in AI, trying to develop new products on AI, if you cannot be sure that what you bring, what you want to bring to the market will be allowed, will be accepted, will be trusted, um, that's a very large disincentive to innovation. Uh, those companies have to take a lot of money into their hands, you know, to, to and probably for, for months, if not years. Um, they, they need to be sure that the final product will be, can be placed on the market, right? So that's the legal certainty element. Take take users of technology. The public sector, for instance, is also a big user or potential use of artificial intelligence. We're discussing this even in the European Commission, right? How can we use AI to become more efficient and this, that, and the other? There's lots of ministries that are experimenting with AI and say, well, all our processes can be much more cost-effective if only we use AI but then you have all those scandals, and we have had ex examples in the past where even governments sometimes have fallen over uh, problems with the use of AI. Two or, three, two or three years ago in the Netherlands, for instance, they had been using AI to see whether social benefits had been dispersed uh, unlawfully to some of its constituencies. Uh, but the software was totally flawed and discriminatory in nature, right? When such scandals then come out, um, of course, this needs to be dropped by the minute and no new government will ever touch AI again, right? Because they say, oh my God, if this goes wrong, I will be out of office sooner rather than later. Yeah. If you have a, a legal framework in place, which hopefully is proportionate 
Then you have the legal certainty for those who develop software and bring it to the market. And you have it for all those companies and governments and whoever else wants to use that technology and says, okay, that's fine. You know, it's been, it's been, it's legal. It's on the market. Let's use it. And the market, of course, and that's my last point, um, the market in Europe always means the single market. And that means 27 countries. It means 450 million users. So if we manage to have regulations in Europe, so directly binding law all over Europe, which we have done for platforms, which we have, have been doing for AI, then it also means as a company, as a startup, as a scale-up, um, you know that you have a market of 450 million users. If we don't act at the European level, uh, that doesn't mean that no one else acts. You know, if there is risks and, and problems out there, you see emerging fragmentation sooner rather than later. We have seen this in the digital space. And then you are this wonderful uh, Czech or Austrian or even German startup, and you are you are you are you are limited to to your national market because the next country has their own set of rules, right? So I would say this this mix of of trust, of certainty, and of a large uh, harmonized market should provide a lot of room for, for, for growth and innovation for our company. I'm also curious about your views on the potential of the EU to become not only a global regulatory policy actor in the digital sphere, but also in terms of its capabilities regarding the physical domain of the digital transition. What I mean by this is, for example, the link to a strategic autonomy discussions, be it chips or semiconductors, while also taking into the account the economic security strategy. Let us, before we turn to this, this very last developments, um, go back to the beginning of, of the mandate of this commission when we came out with our digital strategy. You know, what does it mean making Europe fit for the digital age? What does it mean shaping Europe's digital future and so on? That's what we discussed three, four years ago when von der Leyen came in and made my boss Vestager in charge of making Europe fit for the digital age. If you read all these documents, you will see there was always both the regulatory avenue and the investment innovation avenue. So we always wanted to become more competitive, more innovative, uh, become this sort of center of ac excellence for, for digital technologies, as much as the center of trust or the build the ecosystem of trust around it. Now, that is not just, that's not just policy talk and buzzwords. Um, you have seen those, the manifestation of this in, for instance, in the digital decade, in the digital uh, decade policy program, where we said is Europe, by 20, where we want to be by 2030 in terms of our own capabilities. So that's not about regulation, that's about investment. And we were setting out together with the member states, clear targets when it comes to infrastructures, so technological infrastructures, when it comes to skills, when it comes to businesses, governments, and so on, in their efforts. On the, on the infrastructure bit, we said, of course, as Europe, we need first-class connectivity everywhere. Otherwise, none of those digital business models will be able to, to grow, of course. We need data capabilities. We need European uh, cloud infrastructures. We need European data spaces 
for to create the raw material, right? For for all those digital technologies. We need our AI capabilities. We need first class research in AI because we're investing in all of this. We need microprocessors, which is of course why there is a CHIPS Act. Um, we we need supercomputing power because what what is it that allowed OpenAI to be so strong? Because they had lots of data and they had immense computing power, in this case, given to them by Microsoft. So we need data, we need computing power, we need connectivity, we need microchips. And we have major plans and investment projects supporting this. Um, the, the, the CHIPS Act was probably then also a manifestation of the changes we have seen in the last few years, geopolitical changes. I mean, first, we, of course, had the COVID pandemic. Uh, then we had the, 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 the Russian law of war of aggression in Ukraine and all the crisis that this triggered, right? Which showed in a, in a way, uh, our critical dependencies, uh, and not just Europe's, but everyone's, right? The Americans are having the same debates. So we have seen that we need to secure our strategic autonomy. Call it now autonomy, call it sovereignty, call it resilience. It's all about a bit the same that you need you don't have to you cannot do it all on your own that's not the, that's not the objective it's not that europe has to produce all the microprocessors that will never happen it would be totally uneconomical impossible would make any sense but you need a strategic consideration of where are our vulnerabilities where are our dependencies how can we improve our autonomy how can we partner up with like-minded countries like the U.S. and others uh, to work together in those critical areas. And that is what, what is happening. Uh, so we are investing ourselves, but we are also improving our, our cooperation with the like-minded around us to, to be, as I said, more resilient um, in, 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 the, in the event of, of future shocks and crises as those that we have seen in the past. To conclude... Uh, where do you see the need for future work and how to achieve it without spreading ourselves too thin, though while maintaining the momentum we currently have? Well, I think the good thing about the, the 2030 digital decade is that it's already a long-term project or a medium-term project, right? This is not just uh, for the next year or next two years and then comes a new commission, a new parliament, and we, talk, we do totally different things. That was already a strategic consideration. Uh, that's not going to come overnight. Uh, we're talking about massive investments. Um, so in that sense, this is already the strategy for the years to come. Because we do have, as I said before, we think we have a, a, a legal framework in place that is pretty future-proof and flexible. So the DSA, the DMA, the AI Act and others were designed in a way that uh, they, they are pretty flexible and can be adapted uh, without the need for, for new laws uh, in the next two, three, four years' time. Because we have sort of systemic risk management built into those instruments, uh, we have co-regulatory efforts built into those instruments. So if new risks are emerging in the platform world, if new risks are emerging and on general purpose AI, we don't have to change the law we can just adapt sort of the risk mitigation measures in light of the, of the new risks that may emerge. 
So legislation, as I said before, is more about implementation, enforcement, and gradual adaptations. On the investment side, it's clear what we need to do. We need to, to, to invest um, into those technologies. We need to invest in skills, which is probably more important than any legislative or other initiative we have just discussed, because if we don't have the digital skills, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. So I think we, we have a clear track uh, for the future, uh, and I would not expect any, any great novelties that we should be discussing in a year from today. This was Mr. Wernerstein uh, on the EU's Digital Agenda. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Uh, Have a wonderful day. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening. And don't forget to follow Connect Digital Society on LinkedIn and Twitter 